0: Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame.
1: And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz.
0: Today we have a guest from biology department, Sebastian Hine, second year masters. Welcome Sebastian. Thank you so much, I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, As uh, three biologists here, we might be keenly attuned to some of the work that you're doing, but as we know, not all biologists are the same. You and I happen to study the same organism. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody what you study?
2: Um, I study fruit flies. I study basically individual connections between brain cells and flies. And um, this is my fourth model organism. So I've sort of gone around the world of biology, um, usually neuroscience related though
0: that's awesome I actually could maybe could what other organisms have you worked with?
2: Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I started, I actually went to the university of Waterloo and Wilford Laurier together, um, in my 12th grade. And then I did a year there and then ended up moving to Western. Um, and they have this program there with my high school where you could do research. Um, and I worked in a, a, a mouse and rat neuroscience lab and we studied cocaine and marijuana and all these things before, before marijuana was legal, I might add. Um, this was in 2013, I want to say, um, and yeah, it was great. I I kind of stoked my initial real interests in neuroscience there. I always had an interest in the brain, but then really, you know, established it there and worked for an amazing prof, uh, Dr. Paul Mallet.
0: So you st- so that was um, rats and mice there. Mm-hmm, yeah. So rats and mice, and then you got flies. So what, what What? was the, what's the fourth one?
2: <laughs> and then in a biochemistry lab in my third and fourth year, I worked on E. coli and Deinococcus radiodurans, um, which were, uh, which is, you know, super radio resistant bacteria. I did some, you know, uh, proteo work, looking at different proteins that respond to DNA damage and stuff like that. So it was a little bit different. I enjoyed it, but it was a little too in the weeds for me. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous because, neuroscience gets pretty in the weeds it's quickly, but um, you know, studying a single amino acid of a single protein is maybe a little bit too zoomed in for me.
0: <laughs> I suppose that there's always deeper weeds, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: So Sebastian, will you mind telling us how did your passion for the brain and neurons started?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I, I was maybe about 15, 16 uh, before I worked in that first lab. And Um, I don't know. I was just, I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid, um, had some health issues as a kid and I spent a lot of time in hospitals, um, spent a lot of time around neurologists and, um, I don't know, just was interested. And then I picked up this one book one day, um, that studied, um, the individual connections between neurons. The book was called Connectome, um, by an author who also named Sebastian. Um, and he's a researcher at MIT and he studies, he studied... Back when it was just kind of first coming out in computational neuroscience, the individual connections between cells, it's, and and trying to understand the brain through individual cell connections.
0: Wow, I mean, it, it seems like uh, you you've gone through the like the the picture perfect process. You know, <laughs> you build a, a passion early, you get involved in research as fast as you can, and then you you pave the way for uh, you know grad school, and then medical school, maybe, maybe even, I guess, maybe research involved in that for now, can you tell us what research are you, are you actually doing now with flies? Sure. Yeah.
2: Um, so basically when I stumbled into the mirroring lab, um, both three years ago, um, looking for some more biological perspective and less biochemical, um, I knew I wanted to come back to the neural network stuff and, there aren't a lot of labs that do that stuff yet because it's either a computational lab, which isn't my area of expertise, or it's just not found at Western. Um, but fly neuroscience has kind of recently come into studying individual brain connections. And um, Amanda, had, my, my professor, she had mentioned um, that she, you know, needed someone to take on this project studying neural networks. I was like, great, like this, this is perfect. So. Um, I got really lucky um, in my third year cell biology class. Um, Dr. Rochelle Canip-Aur, uh, she uh, was teaching it at the time and she was a postdoc in Amanda's lab. And, um, you know, I I was super interested in all the stuff because she's taught cell biology through a fly neuroscience perspective, which was really cool. Um, so I got a lot of experience through that and I ended up you know, kind of using her as a as a way to get in the lab.
1: <laughs> so what is it that you study on the flies? Are you focusing on some specific patterns, some specific behavior?
2: Yeah. So I initially started looking at female receptivity. So we, we're a lab that studies specifically female behavior and only female behavior. Um, and the reason why is because um, Dr. Mehring, uh, she noticed maybe about 15, 20 years ago that there was like four or five times more research on male flies than there were female flies um and part of that is because in sexual behavior um the male flies have this really elaborate courtship ritual that's been studied for 50 60 plus years now um and that had been sort of beaten to death with so much research and the female aspect was less considered and you know a man is thesis kind of all along has been that um, the females play an active role in the sexual courtship ritual and that when a male does a certain act like, you know, tries to follow the female around or, or, or tries to sing the female a song using his wings by playing a specific vib- vibration pattern that the female is responding to that and using sex- sexual stimuli from the male processing that and then making a decision whether or not the male is attractive. Um, and then, uh, another part of my project moved on to fly aggression, which is really new work and really understudied just even in comparison to sexual receptivity. And there's only, you know, a few papers that exist on it. And the reason why is because fly, it's, it's really hard to get any species of animal, even outside of flies, to just be angry on the spot when you need them to be in a lab setting, right? How, how do you do that exactly? Right. Um, And in our case, we were lucky enough to find a um, fly line, a genetic line, that when you put it at a heat permissive temperature, it causes flies to just be extremely um, aggressive and attack other flies. And even in our case, inanimate objects, um, like a filter paper or something like that.
1: So how do, how do they attack them? Like, do they hit them or... How so do you the, know it's they're, they're upset and not they're like stressed or something else?
2: <laughs> actually a really important question that you ask. And the reason why it's important is because the original research that was published on this set of neurons um, in cell, like a, a big journal, um, you know, big important paper, um, they thought that this behavior was courtship because the female was following the male in a small, um, you know, little assay chamber And, you know, kind of touching the male and, and doing the stuff. And they, in our, in our opinion, um, they had mistaken their, the behavior for courtship when it was really aggression. And if you score the behaviors on aggression index versus a courtship index, which is just a measure of the individual behaviors. So in, in courtship, there's following there's orienting. So, you know, if you have a male fly like this, the female fly will go like that, um, if, if the female is truly courting, if they're trying to sing a song, they'll flap their wings in order to generate a vibration. Flies actually have oral sex, so will even try to lick the genitalia of the other fly and then attempt copulation by kind of bending their abdomen under and then, you know, uh, flexing their thor- thorax up. So there's those behaviors for courtship. And then for aggression, there's really five or six canonical behaviors. Um, one of them is like lunging where they really quickly kind of just go at them uh there's chasing which can very obviously be mistaken for following um then there's boxing where they're actually like will punch the other fly um there's wing attacks where and this again it can be easily mistaken for a song right they'll actually try to hit the other fly with their wings or wing threats where they'll extend one wing up and leave the other one down Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's definitely interesting because we get these really rare behaviors and all we have to do is put them in, a, um, in a, an assay chamber with a, with a male fly and bam, it goes off.
0: <laughs> wow, so it's, it's cool that you found um, a good model for this like super rare behavior. And now uh, now you can characterize it to really make sure that no one makes that mistake again.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's part of it is, is, is forming, you know, like behavior is definitely subjective, right. And uh, forming a proper definition of what these things are is critical. And it's easy in some cases to do that, like in courtship for males, it's, it's, you know, right away, you can, it's plain as day if you're looking at it for anybody who's ever looked at a fly. And even for somebody who hasn't, I've taught many people how to, you know, score, male courtship behavior in my life and um it's not hard it's it's really straightforward it's really obvious um, because the, the behavior is oriented to the female
1: so what was your goal with your research where you're trying to map behaviors to specific parts of the fly brain or what is it that you were specifically looking with your with your research
2: um for me I- my interests are slightly different than Amanda. So my interests were just like, okay, let's, let's try to find the connections between cells, right? Like I'm, I'm a neuro guy. That's the perspective I come from. And I'm just, I don't really care what the behavior is. I don't really care so much about the model. I just want to find those connections. That's what I'm really interested in. So there's different technologies that you can use to do that. And then Amanda was really interested in the behavioral and the evolutionary aspects because that's her background. Um, And she was, really interested in the specific behaviors and we kind of combine those two things together simultaneously. I've been studying behavioral part, you know, kind of what, what neurotransmitters turning on and off these neurons, you know, that sort of thing, like the chemical inducing agent, um, and, and in what conditions at what temperature, you know, will they attack an inanimate object? that has some pheromone on it. Will they attack males? Will they attack females? Will they attack other aggressive females? Um, but then there's also you know, the connection part, which I'm really interested in, which is using these technologies to say, where are the downstream and upstream connections of these neurons? Because it's a small grouping. Um, we study two separate brain regions that have these aggressive behaviors. One's kind of a sub-component um, of another. And the large brain regions may be about 40 neurons, and then the smaller ones maybe 12. So it's, it's quite small. Like, it's about as small as you're going to get. And it's because we have these really powerful technologies in Drosophila and, and fruit flies to study these things that we were even able to do that in
0: the first place. Cool. So, um, I mean, how do you count them? So, you, so you, how do you even know that you have this exact 40 and this exact 12? How do you get from, I did a behavior to, oh, that behavior did something to this particular neuron? How do you know which neuron does what?
2: Yeah, that's, that's the tricky part is delineating that. Um, and that takes a lot of time and effort um, because basically you'll try to combine different genetic components of these fly lines and then try to make different ones. Think of like a Venn diagram where you have two circles overlapping, right? And you have one set of genetic components that affects one brain region and then another set and you combine them and only in that overlapping region you get those cells that are activated that sort of thing that's the best way I can really describe it um and we're just starting to do that now but I think that question is interesting but it's less interesting than the behavioral question so far and that's what we're kind of attacking first is the easier question um is what is going on with these behaviors? What neurotransmitter is it using? You know, the neuro aspect, I just kind of finished looking at the, the downstream circuitry. So all the neurons that this neuron is talking, these set of neurons are talking to. Um, and, you know, neuroscience kind of becomes like this hole that you never stop digging down, right? And you need to decide at a certain stage where you're going to stop or where you're going to publish or where your personal work ends and another begins. Um, and for me, I'm, I'm Finishing my program, so of course I'm pretty much done. But the work is certainly certainly not over, and I could see I could see a man studying this for a decade. No, no, no problem. Um, so yeah,
1: that's super interesting. But like now, the question that I have is, how did you perform your experiments? Like, could you walk us through what you did in order to like find these paths or these like the connections between the behavior and the brain?
2: I picked a project with easy experiments, fly lines that already existed. And basically all an aggression a- assay is, is you get all the genetic components together in one fly. And then they, are heat temperature sensitive, um, components. You put them at these special temperatures at a specific humidity at a certain time of day. And it's like a little tiny assay chamber, maybe one centimeter by one centimeter, um, little circle and yeah it's they at that temperature they'll either attack and do the behavior that they're supposed to or they won't um depending on the circumstance so and then you cross in different genetic lines so maybe i'll cross in a rnai which is used to um, get rid of a specific neurotransmitter um, and if you get rid of that chemical transmitter maybe that changes the behavior you know that sort of thing so The behavioral experiments are the bulk of what I've done um, and they're pretty straightforward. It's just the same thing over and over again, for the receptivity assays and the aggression assays are very similar. And then you just do different variations of that. So, Oh, maybe I'll behead the males and put them in the assay chamber with the females and Oh, do the females still attack them? Of course they do. Um, They'll attack a beheaded male, um, you know, or, in another case, maybe I'll take a little filter paper and I'll roll it up into the shape of a burrito and I'll put some male pheromone on it and see, see you know, will it attack an animated object? Yes, it will. Uh, so you get these really interesting kind of, <laughs> at this point, I, I, at certain points, I think Amanda and I and, and, and Brendan, um, I, who, sh- who I should mention, Brendan Charles, uh, he's a PhD student in our lab who originally started on this project. Um, it kind of gets to the point where you're almost stoking your curiosity more than you're looking for data that's publishable.
1: <laughs> I just have a quick doubt. I just want to know what do you mean by, um, genetic components? Like how, what are these genetic components that you mentioned?
2: Um, so we're going to get in the weeds a little bit. Uh, so I apologize. I'm going to do the best I can to explain it. Um, but in flies, there's this system that was developed from the East called gal4uas people can just google that and you can you can take a minute to try to understand it it's it's not too bad it's a bi-component system Mm -hmm. we have one component that tells you where in the brain something is going to be expressed or where in the fly body in general and then another component that's functional that is a tool that you use so maybe it's a component that causes neurons to activate Maybe it's a component that causes neurons to express a certain neurotransmitter, whatever the case may be. Um, you have one component that's guiding the where and another component gu- guiding the what is the, is the way I would describe it. Um, and you put these two things together and you have an active bi-component system. On their own, they don't do anything. It's only when you put them together that they
0: have functional. Um, so I guess the um, you were saying you know, you know you did different types of behaviors, like um, you know with the a, male, a female with a male, female with a beheaded male, female with a, a rolled up piece of uh, a piece of uh, filter paper. Uh, but then with all those different types of behaviors, you also then did different combinations of those genetic components. Is that, is yeah. that how you did it?
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really that simple. The, the, the actual methodology behind this project was really simple. It's trying to understand the triggers let's call it for these females and what causes them to start being aggressive in the first place and is it olfactory smell is it you know gustatory taste is it vision is it hearing like what what specific component is doing that um you know and what neurotransmitters involved it's just really asking simple questions and then running the same experiment over and then the neuroscience aspect is really just cutting fly heads open, taking the brains out on a slide, staining them, and then looking for yourselves. It's really, it's really that simple. It, 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 I loved this project for that reason. And I would always pick a project in the future when I do come back to research, that's simple, 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 simple is the best advice I could give anybody looking to do a master's. Or I know, a
0: I know you, uh, you said that you are more interested in that like connection stuff. So probably taking the, the images of the neurons themselves and the brain, Uh, to get these uh, fancy pictures was probably the coolest part or i mean it sounds like you're also very passionate of the with the behavior but uh i'm wondering you know considering you said your your supervisor amanda merring was very interested in uh you know evolution and ecology and that kind of stuff um what what do you think uh is the reason that male that females have this type of aggression behavior at all is there any like adaptive value to it it's hard to say
2: exactly what's going on but here's here's what i would speculate and this is just speculation right um so okay first of all most circumstances like i've described before to get a female or a male to be aggressive you need to contrive a situation you need to take away a food source you need to take away a mating source whatever we're not doing that right this is just a genetic activation so you know what these cells evolved to do and why is hard to say but like there are circumstances where you could say that they're competing for a limited resource um and you aggression would be necessary um whether it's for mating or whether it's for for you know getting food whatever the case may be it's hard to say you know flies are found on every continent right they're they're one of the few cosmic cosmopolitan species that exist right there's like what 10 of them that are on every continent right so it's, it's pretty amazing to to think and The food sources that they consume and where they are located and and the conditions that they can be found in is very varied, very varied, and it's very difficult to say why or how these things may have evolved. But I I think aggression is necessary in probably most animal species. If you think about it, there's always going to be a limited period of competition. What I find most interesting is that, and, 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 and something I didn't expect before, was that the same neurons are often rewired to do different functions and just in different pathways. So, you know, you'll have one set of cells that are used for smell, you know, or for gustatory, you know, taste, and, and they'll also be used for aggression, you know, or, or you'll have cells that are used for memory that are used for different things. It, you, you get this parallel wiring, I think you could call it. And that is what has intrigued me quite a bit Especially in flies, um, because a lot of the work just goes, oh well, these neurons happen to do like five different functions, and that's where you can kind of like get the opportunity to really hit a home run in this work is that you can study one cell, group of cells, and all of a sudden you can you can study all these different areas if you're open to it. And yeah, that's I think that's maybe one thing that's special about flies, and and interesting behind their evolution that they have this you know non-repetitive type of evolution, I would call it, where the neurons seem to have more than one function, very much multifunctional.
1: So are there uh, fly species that are like pacifists (laughs) or that don't uh, do aggressions at all or all of them? No idea. Absolutely
2: no idea. Um, My guess is they probably all do this. If, If you could turn on these neurons, I mean, I'm not an expert on all the fly species. I know a couple of them because they were studied in in our lab by, you know, different students, but they've more focused on the um, sterility and and hybrids and, you know, mating between different species Um, and, you know, pre-zygotic and post-zygotic barriers, that type of evolutionary stuff, um, which is also really cool. I I found that interesting when I was in um, second and third year as well. But um, yeah, I think, I think that this would exist in other species of flies for sure, um, because why would you lose that, right? Like from, from one close species to another, like why would this really unique and probably important behavior just be lost randomly? To, to me, it seems unlikely, but you yeah, never know.
1: Like to be fair, I don't know that much about flies, but I will imagine like, if you have a very cooperative uh, like environment then they won't need to be aggressive because they just know how to (laughs) cooperate with, like, between each other. But I honestly, I don't know. I just imagine that that will be possible.
2: I mean, they're often found together, right? And like, you'll have one food source in, you know, ecological, in nature, right? And it's hard to say, like, you know, you talk to some ecologists, like, you know, Dr. Jeremy McNeil here at Western, and you know, he'll say what we're doing in the lab here is like entirely unrelated to ecology in general. Like it's just not, we're not even studying the same species, you know, that sort of thing. And in in some ways he's actually right. Um, And how this goes to the ecological world, I don't know. And I don't know if it even matters because the questions we're answering are interesting whether they apply to evolution or not, because they're neuroscience questions and we're learning things that we didn't know before about neuroscience in general and about connectonomics in general the study of connections between cells so i don't know it's not my area of expertise but i will say that i'd be surprised if this wasn't ecologically important to all the different you know very closely related species to drosophila melanogaster like drosophila simulans or drosophila melanog- or drosophila Merciana or any of the others
0: yeah i guess in a, a fly eat, fly world <laughs> <laughs> you need to be, you need to be aggressive to, I, I, it, may, it makes a lot of sense that, that, that if there's a, I, I, you said it was rare, but it, it makes sense that they would maintain that ability to, to, to main, to engage in that aggressive behavior. I mean,
2: like a poodle looks really friendly until, you know, you go near it when it's next to food or something like that. Or, you know, like poodles are extremely aggressive. You know, you, you can say that about any species that they look friendly. And that's kind of our human subjectivity, right? With behavior, but in reality-
1: I think that's also training and involving that, right? Mm -hmm. So it really depends, not only the species, but also the context.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's what I want to do next. I want to train my flies to see if (laughs) if I can domesticate (laughs) them, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So uh, it's awesome that you uh, got to do so many different research uh, projects in your, you know, student career. Uh, and now you're coming to the end of your masters, and you're closing up this uh, fly chapter for now. Um, so now that the fly chapter is closing, um, can you just briefly tell us wh- uh, where Sebastian going next?
2: Um, so for now, I'm I'm moving on to med school, um, and hopefully hopefully gonna become either a bench to bedside sort of you know doctor, or probably some sort of clinical. You know trials sort of thing or even just a family doctor i don't know exactly but i'm certainly interested in in connecting research and and uh you know basic sciences to to you know more more practical stuff um it's hard though i've met a lot of these scientists um you know just talking to people who work in translational medicine and it's very difficult to do that but I'm very much interested. You don't necessarily have to make it transitional. You can, you know, you can do basic sciences and then help people on the side, but I definitely um, enjoyed this aspect of my life and, and want to continue it further at some point, but who knows down the line when that comes in and, and how I'm able to make it work. But I've found a way <laughs> so far, uh, I think I can keep, keep doing that. <laughs> it's,
0: nice. it's nice that you have a clear goal and uh, clear passions. But uh, you know, one step at a time. So now, med school is the next step, and uh, good luck with that.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's uh, it's been a lifelong dream, so I'm I'm really you know
0: excited to to do it, and uh, you know, lucky, frankly. <laughs> if perchance somebody wants to follow up with you, find out you know what you what you're up to and about your research or what's going on, uh, where can they find you?
2: So either you know Facebook or LinkedIn. Just my name, Sebastian Hine. Um, you know, look me up. Feel free to message anytime, um, or you can email me, s-h-e-i-n-e, at uwo.ca. Feel free. I'll, I'll respond as quickly as I can. And yeah, it's uh, the fly people at Western and in general are really, really tight-knit communities. So you generally get a lot of communication between us, but not so much outside of the fly community. So anybody who isn't in flies who's interested, please reach
0: out. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Dario Frame. My co-host was Laura Minoes, and we've been speaking with Sebastian Hine, biology master student. This episode was will also be produced by Laura Minoes. And if you want to get involved in the show, uh, be a guest, uh, get involved behind the scenes, uh, email us, gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, um, not TikTok. We don't have that. Facebook <laughs> at Gradcast Radio. Um, you can listen to us. All our episodes are on our website, Gradcast.ca. But we're also on the radio, Radio Western 94.9 FM, um, twice a week, I think. Um, you can find our episodes on any podcast app you can you can think of. Just look up Gradcast, and we'll be on there. And also, select episodes are in video format uh, on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.